morning. Good to see all of you here this morning. And if you want to grab your Bible, turn to the book of Romans, chapter 1. I knew today marked the five-year anniversary of when our family officially started working with this congregation. I knew that. It was in the back of my mind, but I wasn't really thinking about it. We, we restarted our Bible classes this morning, Bible classes all ages, 9.30 every Sunday morning now. And so, you know, kind of focused on that and making sure everything kind of ran smooth with that this morning. And so, much to my surprise, <laughs> kind of an official thing, I guess, but uh, it's, been, it's been five uh, good years, and I praise the Lord that uh, providentially He brought us here to work with this congregation and uh, look forward to the future and what the Lord has in store for us. I will tell you this, the last five years, the emphasis has been on the gospel. And I commit myself, and I hope that you'll join me in this, I commit myself going forward to the continued emphasis of the gospel. That is what the church is about, is the gospel. And we know this for one reason, because of what Paul writes here in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. This will be our text for this morning. It is the thesis statement of Paul's magnum opus to the Roman church. It's the theme. It sets the trajectory for everything Paul is going to write in the book of Romans. In verse 16, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let us pray. Righteous Father, as we consider the gospel this morning, help us to see clearly and to get a, a clear vision of what the gospel is, what it means for us, and how we are to take it into the world with us. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, and we praise you for that in Christ's name, amen. We would think it's odd if a husband never wanted to go out and be seen in public with his wife. I'll eat dinner with you, he might say. I'll eat dinner with you as long as we eat at home. I'll watch a, a movie with you as, as long as we watch it at home. I'll talk with you as long as we do all the talking here at home. 
that would be odd, to say the least, right? I mean, it's insulting <laughs> at the worst. But, I mean, it, one might get the idea that the husband is ashamed of his wife. In a similar way, a baptized believer who never talks about Jesus outside the confines of a church building, who doesn't go out and speak publicly about Christ with others, I think that would be equally mystifying. I'll worship the Lord, someone might say. I'll worship the Lord as long as I do it privately. I'll talk, I'll talk about Jesus with anyone, as long as I know already that they're a Christian and they know I'm a Christian. I'll pray to God in my prayer closet. That too, again, at best, would be odd, a bit mystifying, but insulting at worst. One might get the idea that that Christian is ashamed of Jesus. But you know, Jesus, he understands. In fact, he, he taught about this very thing happening among his people. Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. Hear the words of Christ. Jesus says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will, will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now I know what you're thinking. I'm not denying him. I'm not outright, you know, just saying, I don't believe in him. I don't know him. Fair enough. Turn to Mark chapter 8 and verse 38. Mark 8 and verse 38. Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus recognizes that it may be the case that even his own followers are ashamed of him. He does not endorse that behavior. He does not approve of it. In fact, he says, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you in the very presence of God. And look, it doesn't, it doesn't just have to be an individual thing. It appears, coming back to Romans chapter 1, even whole churches can become ashamed of the gospel. I mean, why else would Paul have to begin his thesis statement, the theme verse for his magnum opus to the Romans? Why else would he have to start with a word about why he is unashamed of the gospel. Except that these Christians in Rome, it would seem that they themselves are ashamed of the gospel. We could speculate as to why that is. Perhaps it is because of the very cosmopolitan environment in Rome. The people in Rome, they simply found the Christian gospel unusual. And these Christians themselves, they're kind of backward, backwood simpletons, right? Perhaps the population in Rome was looking down on these Christians and their unusual message, and so it'd just be easier to go along to get along, and I'm just not going to talk about Christ and the gospel and all that. Whatever the reason, Paul 
is emphatic. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I am unashamed. And not, the word not, is in the emphatic position in the original language. Romans, the book itself, it's a, it's a book about God. And in the verse before us, Paul ties everything back to God. He talks about God's power. He talks about God's righteousness. In verse 18, he talks about God's wrath and how it's revealed from heaven, being revealed from heaven. Even our faith is in God. The gospel, it's all about God, and it's from God. And so God himself, he, through the apostle Paul here, God provides these Christians, and indeed even us today, he provides us with reasons why we are to be unashamed of the gospel. And the, the root of Christians not being ashamed of the gospel, the root of that is the very nature of the gospel itself. Let's just walk through these verses. Paul says, for, let me tell you why, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, you can stop right there. That's one reason why we should be unashamed of the gospel. It is the gospel. And what does the word gospel mean? It means good news. And so the very fact that this is something positive is one reason not to be ashamed of it. Something positive in a negative world. It is good news. Why be ashamed of good news? Plenty of bad news out there in the world. Just get on Facebook and Twitter and you see that, right? All kinds of bad news in the world. But good news? Ah, good news. That's hard to come by. And we, brothers and sisters, we are people of good news. In their day, Paul knew, the legalistic Jews, they had no good news. The idolatrous pagans, they didn't have any good news. The Gentiles, no good news there. The emperor, no good news. We could look around today. The, the economists and the economy, they're always talking about bad news. The evening news, not a lot of good news there, just a lot of bad news. This many people killed, this many people maimed, this many people hurt. No one has good news truly good news that makes an eternal difference in the lives of people. But we do. Christians do. The scriptures contain the gospel that God saves sinners. And he does it through his son, Jesus Christ. We'll continue to unpack the significance, what the gospel is as we go along. But just go, go to the next phrase here. Paul says, I'm not, a, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For, let me tell you why, it is the power of God. There's another reason why we ought to be unashamed of the gospel. The operation of this thing. I, I think we get the wrong idea a lot that it's all dependent upon us. When we talk to people, when we share the gospel with people, that it's really dependent upon me getting and saying the right words and phrases in the proper order. Like, like. Having a conversation about the gospel with someone is like a, like a salvation Rubik's Cube, and i got to figure this thing out and, and, and put the right combination and get all the algorithms right, and then, ring, they'll believe. That it's all, it's all dependent upon me. But Paul does not say the gospel is the power of humans. 
for salvation. He says it's the power of God for salvation. This gospel, this good news message is the power of God. The word here for power, dunamis in the original, you may have heard it before, people talk about it. We actually get our English word dynamite from this. It's okay, it's a decent illustration. The reality is they didn't have dynamite back in first century, uh, the first century world. But when it comes to the power of God, anything from God is powerful. What kind of power? How powerful is it? Well, how about the kind of power that is able to merely speak and the entire universe leaps into existence? Matter itself comes into existence just at the mere word of God. How about, well, how about Abraham and how God is able to make the old and the barren have a child and even the child of promise? How about the kind of power that turns Gideon and 300 of his men into a powerful fighting army? How about the kind of power that's able to make the prideful king Nebuchadnezzar go and eat grass for time, times, and half a time? How about the kind of power that's able to part seas, raise the dead, and is even able to foresee the future? The kind of power that is powerful enough to put God into this world in flesh. And then, when Jesus dies on the cross, the kind of power that's able to bring him back to life. Resurrection power. How about the kind of power that is able to forgive even our sins? No one can do that. No human can do that. But God can. And He does it through the blood of Christ. And not just like one sin or a good portion of, of your sins. God, through Christ, is able to forgive all of our sins. How many is that? In this room here, those watching online, how many sins is that? In, in, a, in a crowd this size... A million? It's probably low, right? And we're told, Scripture says, the soul that sins shall die. But God takes those sins upon Himself in God the Son, dying on the cross, and obliterates them. And only God Almighty can do that. That's the power of the Gospel. Another reason why we ought to be unashamed of it. And then related to that is the outcome. It is the power of God for salvation, for salvation from sin. We realize, before coming to Christ, we realize that we are hopeless, that we are in need of salvation, that we cannot save ourselves, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Paul knew, having been a legalistic Jew, he knew that the legalist thinks, I can swim to shore even though you're dead, dead in the water. Paul knew about that. He says later on in Romans, sin came alive and I died. That's the starting point. And the message of the gospel is powerful enough to save a dead legalistic Jew like Paul and even an immoral, idolatrous pagan who was under the wrath of God, able to save even to the uttermost. That's the nature of the gospel. What are we saved from and what are we saved to? Because that's the nature of salvation. We're saved from some things, and we're saved to some things. We are saved from death, and we are saved to life. We are saved from sin, and we are saved to 
righteousness. We are saved from the guilt of our sin, and we are saved unto holiness unto God. We are saved from slavery, and we are saved to freedom. We are saved from the punishment that came for sin, and we are saved to blessings that come from God. This is the salvation. All the people. He's going to talk about Jews, Gentiles. He's already talked about uh, earlier the Greeks, barbarians, wise, the foolish, all people from the whole wide range of humanity. And there's only one message that is able to save to save them. Who but, who but God can do that? Who but God is able to do that? And then related to this, of course, is the outreach of this thing. It is for everyone who believes, literally for all the believing ones. This is from every nation, every people group, every tribe, language, nation, peoples. The gospel is for everyone. We take it out into the whole world. And then the offer is for everyone who believes, every, all the ones believing. It's that simple. The simplicity of the message and the simplicity of the response, response of faith, and even the obedience of faith, as Paul said earlier in chapter 1, back in verse 5, he'll repeat the same phrase in chapter 16. Anyone is able, if they're willing, to catch hold of this thing. All the ones believing. It's one message that's been proclaimed since the very beginning here, over 2,000 years, and it is still relevant. It is still able to save everyone who believes. All the believing ones. Who but God could come up with that? Humans couldn't do it. You know what humans do? We come up with systems where we've got to work our way to God. And, and we come up with systems where there's scales, and if we do enough good stuff to outweigh the bad stuff, somehow that is able to let us into heaven. You want a good example of this? NBC had a show on the air. Uh, it went off air a couple few years ago called The Good Place. That was all about this merit-based system about how you can work your way into the good place. It was a comedy and making, their, you know, whatever. But that's what people often think about. That's usually what we think of. Is how, is how we're somehow working our way into God's good graces. But if that's the case, it's not grace, is it? That's not the nature of grace. Men come up with all, humans come up with all these different systems to somehow merit their way into the good place. The reality is, only God comes up with a message that the starting point is, you're dead, you can't do it on your own, you can't save yourself, but allow me. And he does. There is an order here to the Jew first and also to the Greek is how verse 16 concludes. There is an order to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And what is this? Is this just, uh, what, first century type stuff, right? Or, or is there something going on? I mean, we think about Paul and we can track his missionary efforts throughout the book of Acts about how he would, when he went into a city, he would show up in the synagogue first and then get kicked out and then he'd go and preach to the Gentiles, or the, to the uh, people that were not Jewish in that city. Is that all this is, is just some kind of missions strategy of Paul? Or is this the wisdom of God at work? I'll tell you right now, it's the latter. And we know this because of what Paul writes when you get to Romans chapter 11. About how all of this is God's strange plan, if you will. It is the wisdom of God at work in human history. In order to save people. What we read when we get to chapter 10 of Romans is Paul, how he still loves his kinsmen according to the flesh. 
how his heart's desire and prayer for them is that they may be saved. In chapter 11, Paul says that uh, from God's perspective, they are still beloved by God, the Jewish people are. And so, again, I don't know what that does for you, but in the first place, we Gentiles, we do need to search our hearts. And we need to see, well, how do we feel about, uh, about the Jewish people? And it's more than just what's going on in the Middle East and all that, right? There's still the diaspora going on. But how do we feel about that? And then in the next place, I think we can expand the principle. How do we feel about all people? Is there someone that we, for some reason, think, well, they don't merit the, the gospel? Or maybe we think, ah, we've tried time and time again, and they're just, they're not interested, so they missed their chance. We need to think carefully about this, that to the Jew first and also the Greek, the principle is the gospel came to us, and now we take it to others. And then verse 17, we, we see that in it, that is in the gospel, we see the actual content. Another reason why we ought to be unashamed is it is the gospel, in the gospel there is the righteousness of God, and that's going to be a, a persistent theme throughout all of the book of Romans, God's righteousness. And that's really what it is. It's not our righteousness. This is not a human righteousness, a works-based righteousness. Keep your finger there in Romans, and listen to what Paul says over in the book of Titus, chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. Titus 3, beginning in verse 3, he says, Paul writes, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Do you hear it? It's not about works done by us in righteousness, he saved us according to His own mercy. He justified us by His grace. He renewed us with the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's God, the Holy Spirit. God, it's all about Him and what He does. This is why at the end of Second Corinthians chapter 5, Paul will say that God made Him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. It is not our own righteousness. It is the righteousness of God. It is Christ's righteousness upon us. And righteousness has to do with right relationship with God and the word justification, which we saw over there in uh, Titus chapter 3, is related to it. It's, it's legal language. It's standing in the court of God and being declared not guilty, not because you did anything, but because of what Christ did for you on your behalf. For in it is the righteousness of God. Notice the origin of this thing. And here's another reason why we ought to be unashamed. It is because it comes from God. Why be ashamed of something that comes from God? Why be ashamed of a gift that comes from God? Think about it. Christmas time, 
It's just around the corner after all. Christmas time, what do you do when you get a gift at Christmas time? I'll just set this off over here, close it behind a door or whatever, right? No, you, you want to show it off. Look what I got for Christmas, right? And here's the gospel given to us by God. It's from God. And what, we're just going to keep it behind closed doors, keep it to ourselves, and no, I don't want to show it off. No, we, it's from God. It's a gift from God. And so we ought to be unashamed of it. And also, think about this. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. God's not keeping it a secret. He's revealed it. The idea of of, uh, something revealed is there was a lid on it, and now the lid's been lifted off, and you can see inside. And everybody can. It's out there for everybody to see because it's, it's no longer a mystery. It's no longer hidden. It's made known. It's true before Calvary, it was a mystery, and that has to do with the infinite wisdom of God and for more on that, you can uh, see uh, Romans chapter 11, chapter 16, Ephesians chapter 3, places where Paul talks about the mystery, in Ephesians chapter 1 as well. But it was a mystery before Calvary, before the cross, but now it's made known. Look, God could have done it another way. Look down from heaven on earth and see all these people. Yeah, some want to be good, but uh, you know, nothing they can do about it. Well, you know what, uh, Jesus, you know what we're going to do? We're, we'll do the sacrifice thing up here. We'll, we'll crucify you here in heaven, and we'll apply the blood to the righteous, unbeknownst to them. And, and then when, when the end comes, guess what? Everyone's surprised. But he doesn't do that. We ought to be glad he told us. More than that, not only did he tell us, he stepped down from heaven, emptied himself. Although being found in the form of God, he did not consider that. Uh, something to be held on to so that, uh, you know, I can't lose this. He emptied himself, took on flesh, took on human nature, became a servant and obedient even to the point of death on the cross. That's what God did for us, and that's part of the revelation. Under the old covenant, there, there, was, there was forgiveness, atonement was made, but how? didn't really understand that it was all pointing to when God would come and put on flesh and die on the cross thereby taking care of the sin problem for everyone who believes. And so we, looking back, we can point to Calvary. And we know that it was on the cross that our sins were dealt with finally and fully by Jesus. All of our sins forgiven in Christ. And in gratitude, we turn back to God and we thank Him for what He did on the cross. That It wasn't a message that he kept to himself, but he has revealed it. He's given it to us, his children, to take it into the whole world. That we become co-workers, as Paul describes it in the Corinthian correspondence. It is revealed from faith to faith. Very enigmatic statement here. From faith unto faith, literally is how it could be translated. Some translate it as, from first to last. It's all right. It, it does have to do with that from start to finish idea. From start to finish, it is all of faith. It is out of faith and it goes unto the result of faith. And so Paul is saying that the righteousness that is offered is obtained by faith. That it is retained by faith. That it heads towards its destiny by faith. If we try to trust in anything else, 
we're cut off from Christ. But what sustains us is our faith. It begins in faith. It's grounded in faith. It looks forward by faith, and it will end in faith. As it is written, notice this, it was prophesied this way. The apostles didn't just make this up as they went along, but rather God determined this is what it would be. And by the way, it's not that God sitting up in heaven kind of looks around and goes, "Uh, what are we going to preach now? Um, I don't know. Jesus, why don't you go do something? This was part of the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And so it's no wonder that Habakkuk, writing 600 years before Paul ever walked the planet, in his day, Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, which is what Paul quotes here, the just shall live by faith, in his day it had to do with King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians coming and bringing judgment upon the people of God, Israel, Judah, the southern kingdom. And Habakkuk, he looks at this, he's like, I can't, I can't believe that. How, God, how are you going to use those wicked Babylonians to come and punish your people? And God essentially says, you really don't understand this righteousness business. You kind of have this relative righteousness going on where you think that you're somehow more righteous than the Babylonians. But that's not what it's about. Either you're righteous or you're not. And Judah, you are not. And so therefore I will punish you even with the wicked Babylonians. Righteousness? It's not like you're kind of righteousness and kind of not. It is that you are declared righteous or you're not. But the just, the righteous, they shall live by faith. And there's the condition for all of this, right? It is by faith. Uh, Earlier we saw back in verse 16, it's for all the believing ones, literally what it says, all the ones believing, everyone who believes, and here it is the just who shall live by faith. And Paul's ministry was about bringing the all people especially the gentiles to the obedience of faith for the sake of Jesus's name he does this back in verse uh, 6 that uh, or verse 5 it is among all the nations he says there at the end of that verse he says in verse 8 that the faith of the romans has been proclaimed in all the world and so paul he preached the gospel indiscriminately to all the nations to all peoples why he can say there in verse 14 that this is to the Greeks and the barbarians. It's for the wise and the foolish. And so, where the gospel goes, faith is produced. Paul speaks to this later on in chapter 10. Verse 14, Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on Him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear? without someone preaching. Verse 17, for faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. I like what John R.W. Stott says about this. Very simple. Christ sends heralds. Heralds preach. People hear. Hearers believe. Believers call and those who call are saved. All people everywhere are commanded to repent. All are commanded to believe the gospel. And so this is across the board. It is for all people, across all ages, they are to hear the gospel and respond to it, either favorably by receiving and accepting it as the word of God, or by rejecting it, and thereby confirming their condemnation. One more thing about this. This is the way it's going to be until Jesus comes back and the world ends. 
It is earth-lasting. It, it lasts as long as earth will be here. That word there, here in verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. That is a present tense thing. It's a present tense revealing. The, the revelation continues, in other words. God continues to reveal, make known the gospel to all people. The gospel, the good news is being revealed to lost people moment by moment. And those who hear the gospel and respond favorably, lost people are still being saved through the power of God in the gospel. All of this is why Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And neither, brothers and sisters, should we. Paul says, it is for all the ones believing. Believing there is a present tense thing as well. It's, it's, a, it's a continual putting your faith. It's not a one and done type thing where yeah, I believed and that's it. All the, all the income free and now I get to just kind of go on with my life. It is a continued faith, a continued trust in God. Believing, having faith that He will do exactly what He said He will do when we share the gospel with people. And that is, He will convict of sin. That He will convict of righteousness. That He will convict of judgment. But also that He will save people. He will save all the ones who believe. All the ones who put their faith and their trust in Christ. As I said at the beginning, it's been five years that we've been here. The Davis Park congregation is, was here long before the Perez family ever got here. And the Lord willing, the Davis Park congregation will continue for years to come. It's still about the gospel. This is why the church proclaims the gospel. Why we are unashamed of the gospel. Why there's no need to be ashamed, uh, any shame when it comes to the gospel. That we ought not walking around like question marks. Why we ought not walk around with our heads down, but rather heads up, exclamation points, saying, yes, our God has acted in time and space. We believe. And we invite others to be a part of this as well. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Let's commit this to prayer. First and foremost, we thank you, Father, for what you have done in Christ, for what you are doing in us. We pray that as we search our hearts, as we search our minds, that if there is anything in us that harbors any kind of feelings of being ashamed of the gospel, that you would drive that out far from us. But as we see in your word, we have every reason to truly believe and to be excited about the gospel. 
We believe, Father, and we pray that you would take our meager efforts and multiply them greatly for your kingdom. We pray all this through Christ our Lord. Amen.